You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Would you build a house without a foundation? Would you have a child and not name it? Would you let a stranger squat on your property? No, of course not. So why should the Internet be any different? Every week, speak with top domain experts. Learn how to make money with domains. Know your legal rights. Each week, join our expert host to be master of your domain. Right here on Domain Masters. Hello, everyone. This is Monty Khan. Welcome to Domain Masters. Another live show here from sunny Fort Lauderdale. Uh, tonight, we're going to go legal issues. Um, I have a great uh, legal guest on tonight, uh, Mark Randaza. Uh, his practice is focused on First Amendment, media, Internet, and gaming law. As everyone knows, uh, there's been a lot of stuff going on in the gaming industry and uh, First Amendment rights, and we're going to talk to Mark in a couple minutes. Uh, we're going to go over some of the things that are going on with the gaming industry and how, uh, how um, the United States' uh, new regulations on uh, uh, United States citizens even participating in online gaming affect things and how that also relates to uh, domain names and domain name law and some of the reverse hijacking issues that are going on as well. So we're going to break for a short commercial, pay some bills, and be back on with Mark Rondaza. Stay tuned. You're just minutes away from more Domain Masters. The question is, are you still master of your domain? Stay tuned. Are your domains working hard enough for you? Now, park your portfolio at RevenueDirect.com to maximize your earnings on traffic. With RevenueDirect's proven domain monetization service, you'll experience better payouts, more options, and smart optimization. Sign up free now at RevenueDirect.com. It's that easy. RevenueDirect. Make more money. Period. It's no secret. Linking with relevant sites is a dynamic way to enhance site traffic. Avoid using unethical practices to promote your website. Obtain quality, relevant links with linksmanager.com. Since 1999, linksmanager.com has been the leading choice for matching link campaigns by thousands of websites. 
Editor-based link management software makes relevant link exchange ethical, fast, and easy. No software to install. Free unlimited support. Try linksmanager.com free for 30 days. Accept no limitations. You have arrived at the destination for education and entertainment. Webmasterradio.fm Because not everyone's last name is Gates. Webmasterradio.fm We're everywhere. Domain Masters. You're still master of your domain. Yes! (laughs) Master of my domain. Here's your host. Master of my domain. Welcome back to Domain Masters. Uh, Again, this is Monty Khan, your host, and uh, my very special guest, who I had the pleasure of meeting uh, two weeks ago at the New England-Miami Dolphins game, and had the um, just... uh, Great guy he invited me to his family's uh, tailgate party. We had the best sausage in the world and ate like pigs and drank some beers and had a good time. Is uh, Mark Randaza? Mark, welcome to uh, Domain Masters. Thanks, Monty. Did, did you have to bring up the, the that painful event of that game? <laughs> you, know, you remember, I'm a New England fan. Uh, it was, yeah, I know. Well, that's, that was that, that's the only me. thing I hold against you is that you're a New England fan, and thank God the, <laughs> the Dolphins kicked your ass all over the place that day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so. Um, I know your practice is focused on First Amendment, media, Internet, and gaming law. Uh, why don't you give us a little bit of background even further than that? Give us like a 30,000-foot view of your experience and how you got into the Internet, um, when you got into law, and what got you targeted or interested in participating in the Internet, and then we'll get into some, uh, some details about what's going on in the industry. Well, you know, interestingly enough, I, I, I made a prediction back in 1995 that this Internet thing was uh, going to go the way of the CB radio, and no one would ever make any money at it. So uh, that's, that's my um, initial point of departure from it, and uh, so don't take any stock tips from me. <laughs> um, well, but, ho- hopefully your uh, legal clients uh, now see a different perspective, though. Yes, yeah, and, uh, and I've come around finally. Um, but, you know, I, I, my First Amendment studies began while I was at uh, the University of Massachusetts. I was an undergraduate student studying journalism, and I got into a media law class, and that just immediately set the fire for me. Um, you know, and, and I decided that I wanted to defend free expression from that point forward. Uh, so I, I worked as a journalist for a little while, and then I went to law school at Georgetown University, and from there, I went on. I, I knew I wanted to get into some IP aspects of law as well as First Amendment law. So I worked at a Swedish law firm uh, in Stockholm doing intellectual property work. Then I did a research and teaching fellowship at the University of Florida in media law. And right. uh, since then, I've been uh, publishing in the area, doing commentary, and uh, representing clients. Now, and, now, now and I, I also teach trademark law and copyright law and uh, entertainment law at Barry University School of Law. Oh, great. So, um, you know, your areas of interest um, are on the side that a lot of people sometimes don't want to talk about or some people don't understand what's, what's involved. So not only are you an attorney, but you're an attorney and, and defending in many cases uh, many of the companies and organizations and industries that are looked at as kind of black-labeled or... Uh, 
um, yeah. uh, the bad guys. So you focus on um, defending the rights of adult companies, gaming companies, yeah. and, and a lot of those. Talk a little bit about that and what makes that a little bit more complicated or a little bit more exciting um, in the area of law and what you've got it, been able to uh, learn from that experience. Well, you know, my... Uh like I said, my initial intent was uh, being, a, being a journalist, I wanted to defend the newspapers. Uh, but then I just started to realize that the truly cutting-edge First Amendment issues are always for the, as you described them, the blacklisted businesses, you know, the, the businesses that nobody likes. Right, Everybody and, and ironically, the ironically, they're the businesses that happen to set a lot of the foundations on how to make money on the web, and yes. it's their initial foundation and their initial practices that that everyone else is using today and making a lot of money on the Internet. Oh, the, the innovation, the technological and marketing innovation that has been driven by the adult entertainment and gaming industries online uh, really has brought the Internet into its current state of technological explosion. Right, uh, right. Without, without porn and gambling, we'd be in the Internet Stone Age. Right, right. Um, that, but, that, that, is, that is true. So, so in many ways, we have to thank these industries, even though sometimes they're looked upon badly as... Uh, what's been successful, even in CPA models that uh, that uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and a lot of the online retailers are doing today, are were created from the adult and the gaming industry. Yeah, and, and not only do we owe, the, I think the the adult industry, especially for technological innovations, you know, we owe them a lot of our freedom, and that's something that you know people who are quick to criticize those industries should recognize. Uh, you know, I was very very inspired by the film The People versus Larry Flint. It is required viewing for my entertainment law class. And any new employees at my law firm, I, I tell them, you, you will really get a lot more out of working here if you watch this movie before your first day of work. It's a great flick, too, uh, The People versus Larry Flint. Outstanding, yeah. yeah, and, yeah. and it just, you know, I, I can remember watching that movie just before law school, sitting in the, stand, sitting in the seats, watching you know, Larry Flint saying that if the First Amendment is there, to, well, of course, it's Woody Harrelson playing him, but you know, if the First Amendment is there to protect someone like me, it protects everyone. And I look at the adult industry, the gaming industries, these, these industries that are not politically favored or not favored in polite conversation, that's the border of the First Amendment, and the First Amendment is the wellspring of all of our freedoms that we have as Americans. And if you can defend that border, all the stuff that we really need, that everybody loves, political speech, you know, really being able to be a free American, that stuff stays nice and far from the border, stays nice and protected, and, you know, the dirty edge of every battle is the front line. Yeah. And, and that, that's really why I, you know, why I jumped into the breach here. I mean, I, I love what I do. Uh, you know, it took a little explaining to my mom. Uh, you know, I got the, uh, got the, so we sent you to Georgetown for $100,000 so you can represent the, uh, the adult entertainment industry, huh? <laughs> uh, you know, they now love you. They now, love you now, now, now when she's they. at a cocktail party, she says, "No, he's he's not an adult entertainment lawyer. He's a constitutional rights lawyer." <laughs> That's great. Well, now let's let's shift uh, folks a little bit and keeping the the gaming industry and the adult industry in line, and let's talk about the domain business and how it relates um, in general. Um, you know, some of the things that you're working on and where you see. Um, law and policy today with the domain name business, especially in those particular industries that are uh, looked upon as, um, you know, not something that everybody um, participates in or, or looks to as a, a model example? Well, you know, domaining is a, it's, it's interesting because it's, a, it's one of these unintended consequences or unintended uh, results 
of the creation of the World Wide Web. I don't think anybody expected that there would be people, you know, running out onto the Internet, uh, staking out their claims, um, kind of the way that people did when they settled the Wild West. Um, these are, it, it is a pure and very uh, admirable form of, of entrepreneurial capitalism. Why shouldn't someone stake out some territory that they see as valuable and then try and farm it to make a living from it? Exactly. Exactly, and there's a lot of there's a lot of misconception, and we've covered this in a number of, of legal shows that we've done. But you know, there's definitions of what cyber squatting is, and uh, a lot of a lot of companies and big organizations, or even other domain owners or former domain owners, think that if you have a domain name that's undeveloped and you're not using it, that uh, that's called squatting, and it's not. And um, and then you get into some of the you know other areas of domain law. What are some of the most interesting domain cases that you've been involved in, and and, um, and you know what are the specific outcomes? Uh, well, interesting domain case, cases that I've been involved in. Um, you know, I've I've done a lot of work for companies with. You know, I, I don't want to discuss any of my specific clients on you know on air, but I have had companies with very strongly developed marketing campaigns, and these companies will invest a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of resources into developing a very well-known trademark. And then if you have, you know, kind of the dark side of domaining, someone will look at that trademark, register a permutation of it, and then try and, of course, divert traffic from, uh, from my clients who have every right to have that traffic go to their website. That's, you know, but that's the clear cyber squatter. That's the one that gives the, the, the rest of the domain industry a stain. Right. On the other hand, you know, I think one of the most interesting cases to recently come out is the LV.com case. I, I did not work on that case, but um, where a domainer owned the domain name LV.com, which they had used to advertise uh, issues about Las Vegas, and then Louis Vuitton came after them and sought to have that domain canceled and transferred over back to Louis Vuitton. Now, I see Louis Vuitton's point. We own a trademark. That trademark is LV, and this person owns LV.com, and they're really not doing anything with it. Therefore, they're infringing on our rights. However, the other side is LV could mean any number of things. It doesn't necessarily have to stand for Louis Vuitton. It doesn't have to stand for Las Vegas. Exactly. And I think what this shows, that case shows what I think is a very big weakness in the UDRP and in, which is the, you know, as I'm sure everybody, all of your listeners know, the Uniform Domain Name Resolution Policy. Yeah, a uh, I mean, trademark wh owner. Wh why don't you yeah, just, um, just, just for those that are new listeners, uh, we have about 2,000 listeners each week um, who download the show and everything, just um, map through the different, um, the different forms in which people go to, to um, you know, just real briefly go to to, to, put, to put together claims or defend their rights. Well, you have two options. You can either use the UDRP or the ACPA as far as uh, legal remedies. Now, the UDRP, uh, let's talk about the ACPA first. The ACPA is declaring war. Uh, that's a federal lawsuit. That is a lot of money, a lot of expense, a lot of firepower, um, a, and it also has a, a lot of consequences. If you take a domainer to court, or if a domainer is sued under the ACPA, they can be looking at a thousand to a hundred thousand dollars in damages for each domain. And uh, you know, of course, you don't want to have a federal lawsuit filed against you. Nothing good comes of that. Right. Uh, the UDRP, on the other hand, 
is an arbitration proceeding. It's not exactly court. It's a lot more uh, informal, and it's a lot cheaper. Uh, you know, an ACPA claim, uh, a federal lawsuit, uh, you know, I would say that anybody who brings a federal lawsuit and they don't have uh, at least some money in reserve up to you know, $50,000 to spend on the life of that case shouldn't be bringing the case. Right, right. Under the UDRP, it's a lot cheaper. Now, under the UDRP, you can file with the World Intellectual Property Organization, the National Arbitration Forum, and there's also the Asian Domain Name Resolution Center. Uh, they're, they're, and they're, there's also a, another conflict resolution service in New York, but they're, they're very rarely used. The, the two big ones are WIPO and NAF. Um, and whether someone files in one or the other, uh, they're, you know, the rules are supposed to be the same. The UDRP has kind of its own growing set of common law rules. Uh, but there's some procedural differences between WIPO and NAF. You know, NAF empowers its, um, its case coordinators to make a lot of decisions that I think panelists should be making. And I think WIPO is a, just a little more friendly when it comes to either side making, uh, making decisions that might not be strictly within the rules. Right, right. Okay, so um, now let's talk a little bit about, um, um, you know, the, the, uh, the new phenomenon um, where domainers need to fly less by the seat of their pants and uh, treat this as a serious business. Um, what's your take on all that, and given your your particular clients? Well, you know, I've I get uh, you know a lot of client inquiries um, constantly from from both sides of the domaining uh, divide. I represent trademark owners in UDRP cases and ACPA cases, and I, I represent the other side. And the the problem is, I tend to get phone calls from domainers after they've already blown it. Um, if you get a demand letter. That's the time to call an attorney. Um, handling it, you know, I, I think that domainers, being a very entrepreneurial group, being a very, very much a making something from nothing mentality. Right. Uh, you know, when, when you have the ability and, and the forward thinking to say, I can create wealth and traffic and I can create a business from virtually nothing here, uh, y- you really have a right to an ego. The problem is, it sometimes makes you realize that there are rules that you have to play by. And when you get a demand letter from an attorney, that is the time to call your attorney. I yeah. often, I've gotten calls, two calls in the past week from people who said, well, we got sued under the ACPA, uh, we didn't really do anything, we defaulted, and now they're trying to collect this default judgment, can you help us? And my answer is usually no, I mean, how am I going to help you? You, you, you got sued. You didn't do anything about it. Now, you know, you've got a lot bigger problems. Whereas, had you defended yourself, you actually had a good case. Now, um, what's, your, what's your take in terms of strategy for those that um, have names that could be questionable? Let's say somebody has a, a name that also has another, another meeting or might have a trademark. Um, you know, what's the definition of, of true cyber squatting in terms of, let's say you have a domain name that uh, also there's a trademark for. Um, just walk us through briefly, um, you know, do you have rights to the domain name if you've registered the domain name prior to the trademark being filed? Uh, what happens if you're um, confusing customers? What happens if you're not confusing customers? Where do the rights go? Where do the decisions typically lay on these types of things? Well, whether there or not there's a trademark owned by the complainant in a domain name proceeding um, is, isn't just a matter of registration. 
Yes, if there's a federally registered trademark or a trademark registered either in the United States or in another country, that's going to create a presumption that the complainant has rights to that trademark. Now, if the domain name is confusingly similar to that trademark, then it's going to become a, a matter of, did the domainer have a legitimate right to it? Are they making some fair use of it? Um, or is it, is it, for example, you could have... Um, you can have a word that's a trademark. For example, no one can say that Apple is not a very strong trademark. Right. But if you register a domain name that just says Apple, uh, you know, and it's you know, apple.info, well, that doesn't mean you're necessarily infringing on Apple Computer or Apple Records trademark rights. Exactly. Now, if you have a domain parking page and you type in Apple. You know, I don't know if who owns it. I'm just using apple.info as, as an example, so I'm, I'm not... I don't even know what's on that website. Let's say you go there, and it has nothing but links to other computer companies, or even to Apple Computer with uh, you know, some kind of a referral fee involved. If you don't have permission from Apple to do that, you're probably going to have yourself in a problem. Now, on the other hand, if it directs you to Apple Seeds or you know, Apple Trees or maybe just a, you know, a fan site for, uh, for, for Fiona Apple, you may have another argument. Right. The question is, are you, you know, it's just like any other trademark case in a lot of ways. Trademarks, the purpose of a trademark is to distinguish the origin of goods or services uh, produced by a particular company or a particular person. It's, it's really a tag. You know, when I, when I teach my trademark class, I, uh, I, I, my, the very first article I give out to my class is an article about dope stamps in New York City. In New York City, during the, uh, during the 90s, uh, there were drug dealers all over the Lower East Side who would stamp their bags of heroin with a certain symbol so that they knew, so the drug users knew where it came from, so they knew if it was good stuff or bad stuff. Right, right. Well, like, kind of like, uh, the... like, like a brand, like they would put a stamp, uh, exactly. uh, and then you would recognize where that stamp, so I, I see what you're saying. So people exactly. drug users and, were and that always seems to, to break the ice with the students, because they understand, okay, now I get it. You know, and, and I say, and now, what do you think the drug dealer's going to do if somebody's out there selling bad drugs, you know, in there? You know, with, with their stamp on it. And the students all kind of look around and say, sue them for trademark infringement? And I say, no, they're going to come cap them. <laughs> Put a cap in their ass. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, you know, all, all semester when, 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 you know, when, when the correct answer to a question is usually sue them, uh, you know, one student, there'll always be a smart aleck in the class to put up sand and go, do we cap their ass now? <laughs> well, you know, a domainer needs to understand the, the same thing. If, if they are registering something that is clearly a trademark owned by someone else, well, that someone else has put a lot of money into that intellectual property, most likely, and uh, they're going to come for you eventually. Right. right. Now, if it's a word, now the gray area is when it's a descriptive term, uh, it may be a term that could function as a trademark, but it could mean something else. It could be merely a, you know, a, a descriptive element of another thing. And, uh, in, you know, in those cases, that doesn't mean that they should ignore any demand letters. You still have to engage the other side, because if you fail to do that, you're going to get served. And once you get served, you've got problems. Right, right. Now let's talk a little bit about the um, the 
the strong arm approach for corporations or what's called reverse hijacking, reverse domain yeah. hijacking. And now, I, I understand is, you've been involved in a couple cases of this uh, nature as well. Yeah, now that is, uh, you know, I, I think reverse domain name hijacking, or RDNH for short, is, uh, shows a, a real shortcoming in the UDRP process. Now, under the UDRP, if a company sues or somebody, somebody files an arbitration against a domainer, for example, in the LV.com case, and they're just trying to grab a domain from somebody, uh, if they have a bad faith reason to do that, the domainer, the respondent, can say, well, you know, not only do I think that I shouldn't have my domain taken away from me, but the panel should find reverse domain name hijacking. And if they do that, you know what the penalty is? Nothing. Nothing at all. So why does this concept even exist? Right. There, I mean, should, you know, be, I, there should be maybe a penalty and a monetary penalty. Uh, if somebody was going to, in, in, on the other extreme, lose their asset, which would be the domain name, the person yeah. being accused of reverse hijacking should be fined or, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, charged with something. I think that would be a tweak that the UDRP is really begging for. Um, there, there should be, I, I think if you're going to file, now, you know, I think there's been a lot of criticism of the UDRP that's unfair. You know, it's tilted towards trademark holders. Well, you know, and, and the evidence of that has been, well, most cases are resolved in the name of trademark holders. Well, that's because most lawyers don't like to bring a case that they know they're going to lose. You know, lawyers will bring something iffy, but if it's a, if it's a clear loser, most lawyers are going to say, don't bother spending your... $1,500 filing fee, and then your thousands of dollars in attorney's fees to draft this and file it. Right. Uh, but, you know, I think that the UDRP could use some kind of provision whereby you have to post some kind of a bond that'll go to the respondent if you are found guilty of RDNH. Uh, there should be a, some kind of a prevailing party attorney's fees provision because it really puts no kind of a, uh, n- there's no downside to bringing a bad claim. Except losing the initial filing fees. Yeah, but it means, fees, you know, to right. a big domain, to a big uh, trademark holder, holder right. know, a couple of thousand dollars, is is, uh, it's worth it to roll the dice. Uh, those dice, if they come up snake eyes, there ought to be some payback. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Now, and, do, you, you know, do you have some stats around um, the number of reverse hijacking cases that have been found, like we're um, uh, across all the forums, uh, you know, how many... Reverse hijacking decisions there were. There you are. Know, I have not tracked that information because I, you know, like I said, there there is no real upside to to getting that. Now I've I've spoken to uh, another attorney on this who who gave me a, you know, he said his side uh, he, he brings RDNH claims all the time and he, and and he had a good point. He said it does create a public relations problem. You know, if a big company is seen as beating up on somebody and they're found to have uh, engaged in RDNH. You can use that as a public relations tool. Also, it may very well discourage them from, you know, if you lose a UDRP decision, you can always appeal it to a court. And you may be discouraged from doing that if RDNH is found. Generally speaking, though, when, if, you know, if, if I defend a UDRP decision, um, my, just as a matter of tactics, I think bringing RDNH is, uh, is, is not something that I ever advise a client that we should do. Because once you're doing that, see, the, the first complaint is the accusation. The response should be just a response to that. If the response also contains a counter-accusation, 
well, doesn't it seem fair that the complainant should have a right to defend at least that accusation? Now you've opened the door. And, and a lot of panelists under the UDRP uh, agree with that perspective. A lot of decisions have said that. So why open the door to allowing the complainant to file a supplemental filing? Right. Uh, I, I think it's just it's tactically not a good move at this time. If, uh, if ICANN does amend the UDRP to put some kind of penalties for our DNH, of course that, that would change. Hey, um, um, Mark, uh, t- let's talk about the, the gaming industry and, um, a little bit and shift, uh, shift focus a little bit. Um, the new legislation and the new laws and what's been created by the current uh, government on United States citizens participating in online gaming and how that's really affected the industry. Uh, I know you represent a lot of these clients. Um, yeah, this, map map this out is, what map out exactly what happened here, how it was able to happen, and what the future of the online gaming industry looks like as a result of this. Well, you know, for years, there uh, online gaming has been a bit of a political football, um, and you know, it seems like it, it, over the past few years, there's always been a House resolution or a Senate resolution trying to outlaw online gaming. Now. I don't know. I don't really understand. Um, and, you know, it seems like it, it, over the past few years, there's always been a House resolution or a Senate resolution trying to outlaw online gaming. Now, I don't know. I don't really understand. Um, and, you know, it seems like it, it, over the past few years, there's always been a House resolution or a Senate resolution trying to outlaw online gaming. Now, I don't know. I don't really understand. Um, and, you know, it seems like it, it, over the past few years, there's always been a House resolution or a Senate resolution trying to outlaw online gaming. Now, I don't know. I don't really understand. Um, and, you know, it seems like it, it, over the past few years, there's always been a House resolution or a Senate resolution trying to outlaw online gaming. Now, I don't know. I don't really understand the philosophy behind banning online gaming. Uh, you know, I, I personally don't engage in online gaming, but I, don't, I also don't see the harm in it. Uh, hey, I'll tell you what, Mark, let, let's do this. Um, let's take a quick commercial break, and we'll come back and follow up on this online gaming issue and find out right, what's great. going on, okay? Um, sure. Stay tuned, folks. We're just going to break for a quick commercial. We'll be back on with Mark Rondaza and talk about um, more intellectual property law and domain name law and uh, the current stat- state of online gaming and what it means to the industry. Stay tuned for a quick commercial break. You're just minutes away from more Domain Masters. The question is, are you still master of your domain? Stay tuned. Best of the Web, the Internet's oldest directory, EOTW.org, since 1994. Our editors scour the web finding quality sites, providing users with spam-free resources, relevant information from valuable sites. Submit your site now for a guaranteed review in three days or less. For webmasters needing additional exposure, check out our 60-day free trial on category sponsorships. 60 days free advertising. No kidding. And don't forget the Best of the Web's reseller program with the industry's highest commissions, 25% recurring commission on all products and services. Bloggers, make sure to check out the BOTW blog directory and the recently launched volunteer editor program to help build the best blog resource on the web. 
Wizards, rainmakers, rock stars, gorillas, and gurus. WebmasterRadio.fm. Come visit our magical Webmaster Wonderland. We got a mouse, too. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. $6 million, $2.2 million, $4.4 billion, $6 million. Then just kicking ass with domain name. Monty, 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 Monty. Monty, 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 and uh, what's uh, what's been your highest domain name sale? How much money was it for? It was approximately one hundred and forty-four thousand dollars. About one hundred and fifty grand. That's correct. Okay, great. You have had eBay by Rent.com and Shopping.com for a combined one point four billion dollars. Monty, 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 the master of your domain. Literally, probably 90 days after buying it uh, for $80,000, Interbrew bought it for $7 million. We appraised the property and helped get it sold for $3.4 million. It was the most valuable asset that they had, $6 million or $10 million on a domain name. When we sold Autos.com for $2.2 million, people thought it was nuts, too. <laughs> domain Masters, only on Webmaster Radio. Be the master of your domain. Domain Masters. You're still master of your domain. Yes! (laughs) Master of my domain. Here's your host. Hello, folks. Welcome back to Domain Masters. Uh, This is Monty Khan. Um, We're just uh, talking with our special guest, Mark Randaza, uh, who is a practicing attorney in the areas of First Amendment rights, media, Internet, and gaming law. So, Mark, uh, you were saying right before the break, um, we were talking a little bit about uh, the impact of the recent uh, United States decision or the government's decision to ban online gaming um, and what that means to the industry and how that affects uh, your clients and what the future looks like and all that stuff. So uh, let's pick up where we left off. Yeah, um, you know, like I was saying, since, since 1998, there's always been some kind of effort to ban online gaming. Of course, every... Uh, congressional section would usually get bogged down by some kind of special interest trying to carve out a, an exception. You know, whether it's horse racing, paramutuals, uh, Indian reservations, land-based casinos, and the online gambling industry itself. And Congress would run out of time before the pending legislation could clear committee hearings, and then, you know, life would go on and American civilization did not collapse. Uh, much, much to the chagrin of a very small minority of, uh, you know, congressional members, and I'm sure a very small minority of people in uh, out in the population in general. In 2006, things were a little different, though. Uh, you know, I, I think that the push for this was really an attempt by Republican lawmakers to reconnect with their, you know, their deep conservative base, which has a, a very strong abhorrence of gambling. Right. And, you know, in order to get this through, had this thing been voted on by itself, I don't think it would have had a prayer of passing. But, you know, at the 11th hour, uh, cramming this on to the end of the port security bill, which was something that, you know, I, I don't think any member of Congress could have voted against, really. 
you know, you, you've stuck this gambling prohibition bill on the end. So the question is, do you want to be looked at as a candidate in the next election as the person who voted against the port security bill? No. And if the online gambling industry has to be a casualty of that, well, so be it. And that's how it went down. So what's it, so what's it mean from a financial impact to the entire industry? I mean, I would assume although I don't know the stat for sure, but I would assume the majority of online gamers were from right here in the United States. Is that correct, or, or, or yeah, are there more abroad? A lot of the players were here. Um, the thing is, the online gaming industry has matured into a very legitimate big business. Uh, a lot of these companies were publicly traded on the London Stock Exchange. I mean, these are not, you know, some... You know, you know, some stereotypical, uh, you know, shady operation. These were entrepreneurs who had grown into big businessmen, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I think that the the effect was literally billions of dollars was uh, in stock value was wiped out almost overnight. Uh, there was a panic in the industry, and right. you can imagine why. the The American gamblers have more money to spend. I mean, you may have more internet users in in other countries. You may have more. I mean, of course, like you know, for example, in India, you know, within the next five years, they're going to dwarf the United States for internet penetration. However, are they going to have the amount of money to spend gambling uh, that that Americans have to spend? Not only that, but we're probably the most addictive sons of bitches there are in the, in the whole world. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. I think gambling's pretty popular worldwide. I mean, it, no, you know, I know, but uh, but boy, I mean, there's you, a lot. you go over to uh, you go over to Asia. I mean, it's uh, Asia. Asia absolutely loves gambling. Oh yeah, well that that is true. Asia, the, the Asia, all the uh, Asian uh, um, citizens, they just love to gamble. <laughs> Yeah, I, mean, sure. well, I don't know about all, but I can tell you it's very popular, and uh, you know, and it's, and it's, and it's again, this is not something that it's you know some some person who's spending all their money at a casino. This is you know maybe a, a, a you know a, a very respectable grandmother who wants to play a few games of mahjong online. Right. Uh, you know, you've got a. I, I know a lot of people who love to play poker online. I mean, how can you say to the American people, playing poker is wrong? I mean, this is this is the United States of America. What what built the West? You know, six guns and poker, uh, and the, the fact that American entrepreneurs and foreign entrepreneurs would maybe want to bring poker games onto the internet is is just a natural thought. And outlawing this, I think, was uh, was simply not as bad as it seemed, but in theory, it was terrible. And and here's why: the act itself doesn't actually make anything, any new uh, online activities illegal. What it does is it prohibits acceptance of any financial interest instrument for unlawful Internet gambling. So does that mean, so, a, so, so map that out in layman's terms, does that mean that you or I here in the United States can't go onto an online gaming site and legally gamble right now? Not necessarily. What it means is our financial, our bank, our credit card company, they're going to have a problem, not us. Now, in some places, it is actually illegal to even gamble online. Uh, I believe Washington State has a law against that. Uh, but, you know, for example, here in Florida, it, it's not necessarily illegal for you to play poker online. But how is that money going to get transferred? Now, this act has not yet been implemented. There are no regulations yet, and everybody is just bumping into walls saying, what is this all going to mean? How is this going to pan out? The problem is that all the publicly traded companies 
ran like crazy from the United States as soon as this happened. Uh, you know, as you may have seen on TV, David Carruthers, who was the CEO of BetOnSports.com, was on a layover in, in the United States flying from Costa Rica to England. And this guy, this is not a criminal. This is a guy who manages a big publicly traded company. He winds up getting arrested and thrown in jail in the Eastern District of Missouri, which, uh, you know, I think there is no surprise that he got arrested there, which was John Ashcroft's home, uh, you know, home district. Yeah, yeah. And, and you're going to throw this guy in jail for running a company that, in his home country, is completely legal. Right. And they, um, I, I understand that the last um, um, gaming convention, um, not not the not the manufacturers convention that was just in Vegas, but the one before that, my, I, we had a booth there. I forget what the name. Uh, um, it was the G Summit. What, what the, I forgot what it was. Anyway, they arrested a bunch of people uh, right there in Vegas. Uh, I, I I don't I can't comment on that, uh, but I can I can definitely say that the the U.S. government is getting very very zealous about this, and I don't think it's going to back off. Um, I, I do think eventually the online gaming industry will fight back. Uh, the, the problem is you've got in a lot of these industries that I represent and you know that we're talking spe- specifically to today, whether it's adult entertainment, whether it's gaming, whether it's domaining, you've got people who have that entrepreneurial spark, that you know what makes America great. But part of that is this fierce streak of independence. And these people with this great entrepreneurial spirit, but this independent mindset, don't understand that banding together to fight against a, a behemoth organization that wants to drive you out of existence is the only way to survive. But I think that once the the bigger gaming companies start to see, now they're starting to see that. I think that there will be some coalescence in the market, and they will fight back, and and I think they should. And, you know, just like uh, Larry Flint fought back in the adult entertainment context and made us all more free, I think the gaming industry will eventually do the same. Do you, uh, you, know, uh, do you see this decision being overturned with a Democratic government? No, I don't. Uh, you know, just, just playing political odds maker here, uh, what Democratic candidate or what Democratic politician is going to stand up and say, you know, the time has come to make online gambling legal. And uh, that's going to be my platform. Uh, that, that's that's going to be a very difficult uh, political decision to make. What I think might happen is simply a, a, maybe a little bit of lack of enforcement. But you know, this isn't all. I, I think it's it's a uh, it's it's bad practice to to automatically think that when something's a a ridiculous conservative move that that means it's going to be a Republican decision. Right. You know, I remember back. I remember back in the '80s, I was considered to be very right-wing because I thought that uh, you know people should have the right to engage in uh, in adult speech and uh, pornography was not something that should be outlawed. Well, now nobody would ever say you're uh, you're right-wing for believing that. They'd say you're you know you're some kind of godless left-wing person. I don't know. The definition of the wing seems to spin around, and I seem to sit right here saying the First Amendment means what the First Amendment says. And our our personal civil liberties mean what they uh, what they say they do in the Constitution, right? Now, now what, 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 as what's far your... as the actual meaning of this online gambling bill, it has to the gambling has to already be illegal. And in the there was a case out of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, sitting in New Orleans that said that online gambling, at least when it comes to poker is not illegal because it's not, uh, it, it's not prohibited by the Wire Act. So under federal law, 
all this online gambling was okay. Uh, the question is, is there, can, a, can a state law then be the basis for this port security bill to be enforced against someone? And that raises all kinds of other constitutional questions, because can a state regulate what happens on the Internet? How can a state do that? The Internet reaches the entire country. So I would say that the port security bill is bad. Uh, I would say it was ill thought out. It was badly conceived. It, was, it had bad intentions. Uh, nothing about it is good. Uh, but I don't think the sky is falling. Now, what do you think the brick-and-mortar casinos think about this whole, um, this whole play? Um, because a lot of them were getting into the online gaming industry. Um, but on the other hand, it keeps people coming to their casinos and uh, not staying at home and gaming. Uh, what's your take on that, and do you, do you represent brick-and-mortar clients as well as online gaming clients? I do represent some brick-and-mortar gaming establishments, um, and, you know, the, the, the ones that I represented did, didn't have competition coming in this, uh, you know, from this field. I mean, there's, there's playing poker online, uh, which is, you know, which is excellent for some people. Some people love it. When I play poker, I like to sit down and look, look at the other guy in the eye. I like to hear the clink of the chips. I like to hear the cards getting shuffled. And I like to actually be there. And I, I think that they don't serve the same purpose. Um, I, so, you know, is this taking people out of a casino? I don't think so. You know, you, you, you can't have somebody come by with a cocktail for you when you're sitting playing poker online by yourself at home in your underwear. So, uh, but I do think that the... The mainstream casinos, uh, they, they don't seem to have had a lot of success in the online gaming world. So I, I think that this, this may give them some breathing room while this all shakes out. And, uh, you, you know, you never know. You may see Bally's jumping into the online gaming market once things, pay, once things clean up. Right, right, definitely. Um, let's, um, let's just shift real quick before the, the sh- before the show ends. Um, you still have some time? Is that okay? Sure. You, had, you rearranged your dinner plans for the, for, for the Monty, show tonight. I, Monty, I got plenty of time for you. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, traffic monetization and, uh, what you see the future of that is. Um, I know that there's, um, a lot of legal issues going on with that as well with trademark infringement. Yeah, you know, uh, one, one thing I've, uh, you know, I've, I've asked, in fact, I had this as an exam question that I gave to my students, and uh, one of the hypotheticals was, do you think a traffic monetization program can be held liable for the actions of domainers that use it? And that is not something that's been decided by a court yet, but, you know, I've been watching, waiting for one of these cases to pop up. You know, in the brick-and-mortar world, you have, when there's an infringement, there, there is this theory of contributory liability. And if one of your customers, like look at the Grokster case. Now, that was copyright infringement, but it's a similar theory, and it's easy to understand. When the users of Grokster were the ones doing the copyright infringement, Grokster wasn't really doing anything. And that was their argument. Hey, we're, we're doing nothing. We're just sitting here. It's our users using our system. We can't help how they use it. Well, the Supreme Court said not exactly. Uh, you know, you created something that has no other purpose except copyright infringement. Now, that right. would not apply to a traffic monetization program. But let's say you've got a domainer with 10,000 domains, and they're all generic, except for a couple in their portfolio that might be infringing and might not be. I think if that's the kind of person in your traffic monetization program and there's a few iffy domains in there, I don't think you've got a problem. 
But I have seen, you know, I got a, I got a hold of a list of 6,500 domains owned by one domainer, and uh, every single one of them was an infringement on a very well-known trademark. And we're not talking about something that, you know, it's, it's a trademark because it's registered on the USPTO. We're talking common household trademarks that everybody knows. Right, right. Now, could you say to that traffic monetization program, hey, you, you know, could, could they seriously say, we didn't know? And that will be a question that one day a trademark holder is going to say, you know, instead of chasing down the domainer, where we're going to have to find them, who knows where they are, uh, let's go after the traffic monetization program and really make a stir. And, uh, you know, I, I can definitely see that happening in, you know, in the near future. Now, there's, there's just too many cyber squatting cases going on uh, that, you know, it's really whack-a-mole. And when a big trademark holder decides that they want to take the risk of bringing this case, uh, I think it's going to cause a serious shakeup in the industry. Now, I think a traffic monetization program that has it brought to their attention, that creates an even more precarious situation for them. Uh, if they are put on notice that one or many of their customers are using their program to infringe on somebody else's rights and making money off it, they may find themselves holding the bag. You know, remember, you know, I mean, Monica probably knows better than anybody. Uh, you know, a domain name can be a most valuable, can be an incredibly valuable asset. And the reason for that is that origin of sor- that, that source of origin of goods that that domain name can immediately communicate. Well, when it comes to products, you know, like for online gaming, hey, what's the difference between each online casino? Probably not a whole lot. You do the same thing there. An adult entertainment company, you do the same thing at each one of them. But it's that trademark, it's that name, it's that most valuable asset that these companies are trying to protect. And, uh, and, and I think that it, it would be uh, ill-advised to, to not see, you know, when there's storm clouds on the horizon. Yeah, definitely. Um, lastly, before we, uh, before we end the show, um, I know there's been a lot of talk about the direct neck issue and uh, the, the crossing the confidential confidentiality guidelines and when to pull names and who plays judge and jury and all this stuff. What's, what's your take on what happened here and uh, where a registrar um, steps in and where they should not and uh, what, how the industry is reacting to that? Well, uh, the, the background of that is this federal law that was uh, passed called Section 2257. Uh, that was passed ostensibly to keep uh, minors out of adult entertainment, which is a laudable goal. Uh, no one in the legit... I, don't, I know... Many, many people in the adult entertainment industry, I am intimately immersed in the industry, and I do not know a single person that would rather have someone who's 17 years old in one of their films. Nobody wants that. There is nothing but trouble in that, and frankly, hey, it's wrong. Uh, You know, I I defend any number. I would defend anything except child pornography. I I have no desire to, uh, to, to, to make it okay for a 12-year-old to be in an adult film. But when the government passed this law, what it required is this record-keeping scheme where you had to keep all of these records on someone, no matter how old they appear to be. And those records have a lot of confidential, personally identifiable information about the actors and actresses in adult entertainment. Now, what Direct Nick wanted is when they looked at some sites, they made a decision that there was some questionable content on it, 
and then they wanted those records provided to them in order to keep that domain operating on their servers. What else they did is they said that if you don't give it to us, we're going to lock your domain. You can't transfer it to someone else. Now, I think that there's a problem with asking for these confidential records when they don't have a right to them. I think there's also a problem with locking down the domain if it isn't provided to them. Now, if anybody sees child pornography on the web, or even something that's questionable, heck, if I see something that's questionable, I, I think anybody who sees it should report it to the police. Bring the authorities into it. There's plenty of room for legitimate adult entertainment and still allowing kids to have their childhood. Um, I, I think Directnik may have overstepped its bounds a little bit here, and you know, given the fact that they, uh, you know, they really could claim immunity, I'm not really sure why they made that move. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, um, um, lastly, um, as we end the show, uh, what I'd like to do is um, um, have my guests give some really good tips and tricks about how to be more successful at what they do. In, in this particular case, um, perhaps you can lay out some good secrets about the best way to communicate back and forth with somebody um, giving a cease and desist letter, what works best for an accusing attorney, um, because I remember when we were um, when we were at the tailgate party, um, you talked about how you know you really don't want attorneys don't like taking people to court. You don't like pursuing the next step. What can people do to make things least painful, or what are some of the tricks that people can have to avoid litigation or boy, avoid legal activity, um, um, or maybe do what they do and not be um, uh, accused of anything? Well, you know. D- I mean, the, the only sure way to, you know, to, to not be accused of anything is, you know, one step you could take is take a look before you, you, know, you think you're registering a great domain name. Take a look around and see if somebody might have a problem with it. Uh, it's not that hard to go on the USPTO website and do a trademark search. Uh, now, I understand when somebody's going to register 10,000 domains at a time, that's really not going to be a, a practical thing to advise them to do. But when you get a letter from a, from a trademark owner or from a trademark owner's attorney, engage them immediately. You know, say, okay, we're willing to talk to you. Open up the dialogue because for the most part, you know, I wouldn't say that I, that I agree that most attorneys don't like to go to court, but, you know, most of us are pretty good guys that, uh, you know, as long as you, you tell the truth to the other side and, and you negotiate in good faith, things are going to work out. Um, nothing, no dispute ever really has to go to court. Uh, you know, I think going to court means, it, going to court is kind of the equivalent of you spill the beer on somebody in a bar and you, you could buy them another beer or you could go out in the parking lot and fight about it. Well, well, who really wins if you go out in the parking lot and fight about it? You know, nobody. One person loses the fight, the other person gets arrested. You know, I don't see anybody really winning there. Right. So I think engagement, engagement and honesty and, you know, really engage people with some kind of ethics. Uh, you know, I, I always try to approach people, uh, you know, and of course it's not possible. In a, you know, in a perfect world it's always possible, but I always try and approach the other party uh, in, a, in a conciliatory way. And, uh, you know, domainers who do that are going to find themselves most likely uh, sued a lot less often. And what about, um, um, maybe you can give us some some little, uh, I know it's probably a, a difficult um, tip to give, but what about avoiding? When does a lawyer give up on pursuing a case uh, if they're not getting a response or whatever? I mean, what, what happens in those particular cases? 
You mean if they send a send a cease and desist and they don't and get there's it, no they response, don't get you work? but you know, when do you determine whether it's worthwhile pursuing legally and going through the expense if you're not getting any response at all or or what? You know, it's you. always up to the client, and uh, you know, and and that's who I leave it up to. You know, I'll I'll tell my client if they have a bad case. Uh, I will tell my client, you, you don't have a good case. Uh, let, let's not spend your money on this. But it's always a cost-benefit analysis. Um, but, you know, somebody who just, when, when I have, uh, when I'm working for a trademark owner, I'll usually create a list of all potentially inf- infringing domain names, send out some cease and desist letters, and then, uh, you know, for anybody who we hear back from, we put in one category, and now we've engaged them. Then the people we don't hear back from at all, we put them in another category, and I tell my client, well, if, if you want to pursue somebody, pick someone from this list, because we're already negotiating with these people. We might be able to work something out. So, you know, just hiding and lying low is, is not something I would advise someone to do. Engage the other side. Uh, you know, do so with the assistance of counsel. You don't want to say something uh, to, you know, no matter how friendly another attorney's being, you understand they're not working for you they're working for the other guy you know get some help from an attorney who knows what they're doing um, you know there's there's quite a few of them um, you know, even listed on moniker's website you know uh, one of I'd like to plug one guy I have a lot of respect for John Berryhill uh, is a great guy to call if, you, if you're not gonna call me call him um, you know these are people who have a, a track record of winning these cases and the sooner you get involved with a lawyer you sooner you get them working with you the sooner they can start building the foundation to protect you. And in the, in the course of that, you may learn something that will keep you out of the next case. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a good point. And I have a, I have a high degree of respect for, for you and, uh, and the other domain attorneys, and we do have a list of domain attorneys on our site on the, on the uh, uh, partners page. And um, because we defend and we help so many large domain owners and also the big portfolio holders, uh, they're faced with these challenges every day or every month or every week something comes in and um, it's it's a great uh, to have resources like you mark that uh, you know know your shit and uh, defend the domainer and defend the rights of the of the little guy lots of times and um, and and basically be able to um, um, you know win these cases uh, when people are getting um, you know reverse hijacked or um, you yeah. know attacked so that's that's yeah, great and news. I think I think it's good to you know and, and uh, like I said I, I work on both sides of the aisle and I think that makes, you know, when somebody does that, you can kind of see that you can anticipate the arguments on the other side. Um, you know, I always love it when I defend a, a little guy against a behemoth. There's, nothing feels better than uh, walking into a case where the other side is represented by some, you know, 600-lawyer mega firm, and they think that they've got an entitlement to win the case. And then you walk in as, the, you know, the, the lone gunman, and you can protect your guy um, that's always a, a very gratifying feeling. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, I really appreciate your time tonight and uh, and your good insight and uh, a lot of the good history about the gaming industry and the adult industry and uh, look forward to working with you in the future and glad we're helping you out with a lot of the companies that you're representing as well. And uh, you've yeah. been, a value, uh, been a great host. I mean, a great, right, uh, honey, great guest. A <laughs> great guest. So uh, enjoy your dinner. Give your girlfriend a big fat kiss for me. Tell her I said right. hello. And uh, I've been dreaming about the sausages we had at the game, so uh, I think I'm going to go home and get some of those uh, real good sausages that your relatives cooked up for me. <laughs> All right, man. All right, take thanks care. a lot, Mark. I really appreciate it. Sure, bye. Okay, take care. Well, again, uh, a special thanks uh, to my guest, Mark Randaza, 
uh, great uh, 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 defender of, uh, of rights, First Amendment rights, uh, uh, specializes in First Amendment media, Internet, and gaming law. Um, he has experienced litigating libel defense cases, drafting online agreements, counseling Internet and land-based gambling uh, operations, and, and etc. Um, you can uh, find his information on our website at uh, www.moniker.com in the Partners section. I'm also posting it in the forum, uh, along with a bunch of other attorneys that are there that specialize in the domain industry and also intellectual property uh, field as well. So uh, these guys are great, valuable resources. They're reasonable in cost, and they like defending you all, uh, the domain owner, and can really give you great insight and uh, education about what your rights truly are. Um, one piece of advice as a CEO of a company in our industry that uh, that I've seen over and over again since I've been in this business since 1996 is that is when you are faced with a cease and desist or you're faced with a WIPO claim or UDRP case, defend your rights. Um, by not defending it, you're bound to lose. You're, you're almost certain to lose your domain name, and it sets a precedence for uh, future cases, so people uh, will use your case as an example where you've lost the, the, the domain case, and then they'll use that as an example to um, uh, set a precedence for other domain cases. So if you defend your rights, you have a chance to win, and um, um, actually it's about a 50-50 win-to-lose ratio right now for domain name owners versus um, uh, those that are accusing them as uh, for cyber squatting. So uh, just a little uh, thought and uh, advice about that. With that said, I will wind up this week's show. I want to wish everybody a very uh, Merry Christmas. Um, we will be on next week uh, uh, with another show, so uh, I'll wish everybody a Happy New Year then, but also Happy Hanukkah uh, for those that are celebrating uh, the Festival of Lights. And uh, we'll be on next week with a live show uh, on Domain Masters. Be the master of your domain names and uh, the master of your domains, and I will see you next week. Also, I uh, wanted to let you know that we are holding the next live auction, which happens to be at Internext in Las Vegas on January 17th. Um, and uh, we're going to sell several million dollars worth of domain names again at this live event. Internext is uh, an adult webmaster gathering in Las Vegas, but there's going to be both mainstream and adult names being represented there. So uh, if anybody's interested in learning more about our live domain auctions or any of our domain uh, services, domain asset management services, please contact sales at moniker.com, and we'll be happy to help you out. Or you can contact me directly at Monty, M-O-N-T-E, at moniker.com. Archives are posted on the moniker.com website and also on webmasterradio.fm. I will see you next week. Take care. November 2004, a brand new radio station launched onto the World Wide Web. That station was Webmaster Radio. Um, and, you know, it seems like it, it, over the past few years, there's always been a House resolution or a Senate resolution trying to outlaw online gaming. Now, I don't know, I don't really understand. Um, and, you know, it seems like it, it, over the past few years, there's always been a House resolution or a Senate resolution trying to outlaw online gaming. Now, I don't know, I don't really understand, um, and, you know, it seems like it, it, over the past few years, there's always been a House resolution or a Senate resolution trying to outlaw online gaming. Now, I don't know, I don't really understand, um, and, you know, it seems like it, it, over the past few years, there's always been a House resolution or a Senate resolution trying to outlaw online gaming. Now, I don't know, I don't really understand, um, 
And, you know, it seems like over the past few years, there's always been a House resolution or a Senate resolution trying to outlaw online gaming. Now, I don't know, I don't really understand. And, you know, it seems like over the past few years, there's always been a House resolution or a Senate resolution trying to outlaw online gaming. Now, I don't know, I don't really understand. and, you know, it seems like hey, it, over the past few years, there's always been a House resolution or a Senate resolution trying to outlaw online gaming. Now, I don't know. I don't really understand. Um, and, you know, it seems like hey, it, over the past few years, there's always been a House resolution or a Senate resolution trying to outlaw online gaming. Now, I don't know. I don't really understand. Um, and, you know, it seems like hey, it, over the past few years, there's always been a House resolution or a Senate resolution trying to outlaw online gaming. Now, I don't know. I don't really understand. Um, and, you know, it seems like hey, it, over the past few years, there's always been a House resolution or a Senate resolution trying to outlaw online gaming. Now, I don't know. I don't really understand. Um, and, you know, it seems like hey, it, over the past few years, there's always been a House resolution or a Senate resolution trying to outlaw online gaming. Now, I don't know. I don't really understand. Um, and, you know, it seems like hey, it, over the past few years, there's always been a House resolution or a Senate resolution trying to outlaw online gaming. Now, I don't know. I don't really understand. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.